Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Wendy, when I say fairies, what do you think of? Uh, I think of little mystical, magical creatures with wings, kind of yeah. like the ones that, uh, was it Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that did the... <laughs> yes, the Cottingly fa- Yeah, the I think of those, fairies. and I think of Grimm's fairy tales that include all kinds of that type of creature. Um, might, might think of Tinkerbell a little bit. Yeah, like I would say that kind of thing. I mean, that's our modern idea of the fairies is that idea of the little winged people that live in the forest and they're fun. And, you know, they, they could be like leprechauns, like leprechauns. Mm-hmm. They're not that bad. They're friendly. They're cute. Yeah. And magical. I mean, not the leprechaun from the movie Leprechaun. Like he's not <laughs> cute and magical. I mean, he's magical, but he ain't cute. I bet his mom thinks he's cute. That's true. I bet his fairy mother thinks, you know, but I really think about <laughs> that, you know, we've had this idea, like, I feel like that fairies have tricked us over the past hundred or so years to think of them as friends instead of enemies. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that's the whole thing, because people didn't think of fairies as happy, happy fun time 500 years ago. They thought of them as these these strange creatures that lived in the forest, and they would come in and they would, you know, they lived at the mercy of the fairies. They were like little pranksters. Yeah. mess with you. Or worse, and we're going to talk about the worst stuff in this episode today. If you want to see maybe a, a version of the fairies that's more in line with the traditional idea of it, i got to recommend this movie called The Hallow. Ooh, and it's I haven't a, heard of it. It's an Irish film from a couple of years ago, and uh, it presents the fairies in a way, well, a new kind of way. I don't want to say too, talk too much about it, because okay. it's, a, it's a great horror movie. No spoilers. No spoilers. But uh, check out The Hallow for a different idea of fairies. Okay. Maybe we'll have to watch it for one of our Patreon hangout discussions. Yeah, that's a good one. In the future. There's also an episode of Torchwood where um, they deal with fairies. And they actually deal with this very specific thing uh, where the lead character actually has to make a deal with the fairies in order to get somebody back. But it's interesting because, I mean, I think fairies have the best public relations people of all. Because they totally work. Like, oh, like Tinkerbell's sweet. Your fairy godmother grants you wishes. Right. You know, your fairy godmother does not steal your baby and replace your baby with like a sickly uh, half copy. Let's hope not. Yeah. Well, today we're welcoming Josh Cutchin. We've had him on the show before. And, you know, he's written about supernatural foods. He's written about supernatural odors. We talk about this in the interview. I mean, he he's changed. provided us with all kinds of supernatural, yeah. paranormal content. Yeah. And um, so we talk, a little, you know, a little bit about how I feel about Josh's work. Uh, in the interview, Allison from Milwaukee Ghost joins us for this one. And because I, she loves Josh, all of his work and everything. And so it's, it's a super interesting interview. Uh, he's a super fun guy. And his research is painstaking, which makes it exciting to talk to him. Oh, we love that kind of author. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this time, uh, he's gone for not a sentence like you think, okay, we have supernatural foods, supernatural smells. Do we now have supernatural touches? You know, or is it, you know, is it going to be supernatural? uh, I can't even, what what other senses? Supernatural audio. No, he goes for the jugular in this one. As he explores child abduction, supernatural stories across cultures over the years. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a very sensitive subject, but he deals with it well. 
and let's go talk to Joshua Cutchin about his new book, Thieves in the Night. Accordion author Joshua Cutchin wrote the groundbreaking A Trojan Feast, the food and drink offerings of aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch in 2015 to examine millennia of strange cross-cultural paranormal food taboos. Following it up with The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, Joshua explored olfactory experiences reported during paranormal encounters. Today, he joins us to talk about perhaps his most frightening work to date, his new book, Thieves in the Night, which examines the disturbing history of paranormal child abduction. Thank you, Joshua. It's wonderful to talk to a fellow badger again. <laughs> always an absolute pleasure uh, to to speak with y'all. Uh, you, you're always a highlight whenever I do one of these interview circuits, so I oh, appreciate it. Oh, you're a Thank highlight, you. too. We just love your work. Absolutely. We think your work's awesome. And I got to say, Brimstone Deceit changed the way I think about paranormal activity. Oh, that's that's quite flattering. I really appreciate it. Did. It did. And I, I must have talked about this in a dozen podcasts, but I'll just summarize it here. Um, that, you know, that scent of sulfur... Uh, in all these different encounters from Bigfoot to UFOs to fairies to all these different things you talked about in your book uh, made me rethink my theory on what paranormal experiences could be. And that idea that um, that smell of sulfur is like that. That's how we enter program mode. That's the aliens or that's machinery elves or whatever right, like that. That's, that's our trigger. That's our trigger. And all of a sudden we remember it as Whatever we decide to believe in, whether it's Bigfoot or whether it's a UFO. So that, that entire thing gave me a whole theory on paranormal activity that I didn't have before. So thank you, John. Well, you're, you're welcome. It's it's an idea worth considering. You know, I, I vacillate sometimes between whether or not I believe it myself or I, I think that it's – I think that there's I think there's something there. It's not sure what. So Right. Uh. Um, so – just to get in real quick, what inspired you uh, to attack attack this particular topic? Because as a as a new parent myself, not really new, about twenty months though, but as a parent myself, and the idea like there's a visceral reaction to the idea of anything happening to your child, like it's out of like. You just feel this, that mama bear. Oh, I don't feel the mama bear instinct. but Papa, the papa bear. bear. <laughs> you know, d- depending, hey, depending on my mood, it could be the mama bear. But no, but any little piece, like anything happening to your kid, like drives you instinctually mad. So this is the kind of topic that's pretty challenging. What attracted you to it? Uh, part of it, Part of it was that... Everyone was thinking I was going to do something about sound or touch or something, something else you know, <laughs> right. sense related. So, in my experience, when everybody thinks you're going to zig, it's usually a good idea to to zag. Um, you know, keep Ooh. it fresh. So that was part of it. Um, you know, part of it was me thinking about because as much as I, I I enjoyed writing the Brimstone Deceit, and as proud as I am of it, I had to, by nature of the subject matter, really dig into chemistry, which is not something that I was ever enthusiastic about uh, as a student. So I sort of sat back and said, well, what really does get me excited? And that's really fairy lore. Um, So it was partially that. Um, It was also partially the fact that uh, it's probably no secret that I'm not particularly bullish on the extraterrestrial hypothesis as an explanation for the contact experience. Um, I think that, uh, I think that, I'm open to the idea that there's been extraterrestrial visitation to Earth in the past, but I don't think it describes the lion's share of a lot of entity encounters that people have. So being somebody who sort of ascribes to a non-ETH paradigm, 
I realized if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I have to address what I thought of the sort of uh, modern hybrid program theory that you find in a lot of, you know, contact. Mm -hmm. And part of me was just going, part of me sort of just thought it was nonsense. I'm like, that's not, that's not fair, you know, because there's obviously something there. There's a consistency to a lot of these reports. So, you know, uh, deal with it, find a way to, to sort of uh, fit that into your paradigm and see if it changes the way that you think about these things as well. So it was sort of an outgrowth of all those things. Um, And of course the hybrid thing is naturally that has some, uh, Comparisons, some that a lot of people have noticed, and some that you know I think are a little bit lesser noticed, uh, with uh, some parallels to the changeling lore. In, uh, yeah, we got to talk the, about that. Yeah, yeah especially the British. We should Isles, start with so. that for people who aren't familiar with the fairy, uh, with the fairy changeling lore and the idea of it, and the idea of you know fairies coming in and stealing your kid and replacing it. Um, can you do just a quick one hundred and one for people who may not be familiar with the idea of the fairy changeling? Absolutely. So it's it's an idea. It's a concept uh, that you'll find in a lot of worldwide cultures, but it's especially pronounced in uh, the British Isles and um, Scandinavia and uh, Germanic uh, countries as well. Um, it's the concept that beings from the other world. I'm going to try to keep this as generic as possible. Beings from sure. the other world. Uh, will adu- will steal a healthy human child and replace it with something different. Um, the way that this manifests, particularly in fairy lore, is the idea that uh, the fairies themselves need uh, genetic material to bolster and, and improve the health of their own race, which, of course, if anybody's familiar with you know <laughs> UFO hybrid theories, that should sound familiar. But um, the idea that the fairies would take a healthy human baby and leave behind either a sickly fairy child an elderly fairy person or some bit of, uh, of, of worthless rubbish in its place cloaked with glamor to appear as a child. And the idea was that, uh, people would be saddled with these, um, sickly, unhealthy, peevish sort of, uh, children that weren't their own at all. Uh, and from that you have an entire culture of, um, often barbaric, uh, means of resolving, this uh, sort of trauma that people would have where they would perceive whether or not it's true or not. And there's some nuance there that we can get into as well. Um, but where they would perceive this other alien child in their midst, they, there was sort of an entire culture of uh, prescriptions to retrieve your child, to expel this child of the other world and to return your life to normal. Um, so that's, that's the way that it, it the, the narrative typically played out um, in Western Europe, for example. Well, that's really interesting to me too, because just you talking about that brought up the idea, and you can even hear that from um, parents of autistic kids who say, you know, when they like the whole anti-vaxxer thing is that they took the vaccination and the next day that wasn't my child, you know, or it's not the same kid that it was the day before. And I guess I never even thought of that connection to you know whatever side you land on or whatever side people believe and stuff like that. That idea that um, this is that this is going back. It's millennia um, that one day my kid is a certain way and the next day that's not my child. Right. And, you know, it's because <laughs> this book more than other books that I've written deals with a lot of uh, a lot of sensitive issues. And I tried to yeah. speak with some friends of mine um, who uh, who have uh, children with disabilities and ask them, you know, am I handling this in a sensitive way? Because I think that I think that one of the biggest problems facing a lot of 
paranormal researchers and authors and whatnot is they want to say that everything is one thing. They want to say that every anomalous light in the sky is an alien or that every sighting of something shaggy in the woods is, is Sasquatch. And I come from the not school saying of it's thought, aliens, no, right. but it's aliens. <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it's fairies, but it's fairies. Um, <laughs> I come from the school of thought that, um, that probably 80%, well, that's probably a little bit high. The lion's share of, for example, lights in the sky are misidentification. Then there's another portion, a smaller percentage that are misunderstood natural phenomena, perhaps that we don't understand yet. Uh, an equal or smaller, uh, uh, equal or smaller percentage that rep- are rep- basically unorthodox or secret military aircraft. And then there's a genuinely anomalous significant uh, percentage of, of sightings as well. So I think that you can sort of look at the fairy changeling, um, you can look at the fairy changeling phenomena in a similar way. Like I think honestly, a good portion of these are sort of uneducated attempts for the culture at the time to describe a host of congenital disabilities. And one chapter, a pretty long chapter in the book uh, details a lot of different candidates because there have literally been dozens of candidates proposed through the years to describe um, this sort of changeling phenomena. One of them, one of the more persistent ones, one of the more popular ones is autism, as you mentioned, especially regressive autism where a child seems to be developing functionally and then all of a sudden has a, has a pretty large setback. So I think, a lot of it is that um, I think some of it represents a genuine contact with the other world. And I think probably this is probably the more controversial idea. I think some of it might actually be both that there is something extra um, paraphysical going on in addition to, you know, an actual, uh, an actual physical or, or mental disability that's taking place in the person as well. So a lot of these, I mean, legends and, and fairy lore and folklore that's around it, it's our usual explanation of what the savages did in the past. You know, we talk about what happened, you know, in the um, those people who needed uh, Carl Sagan's candle in the dark uh, to get, and science, to get outside their demon-haunted world. And we have that all in our heads of... Uh, the way people in the past lived and what they believed, and you know they were superstitious and right. uneducated, and how and much more advanced we are. That that's a conceit that we have in modernity. Yeah, right. yeah. Even though the DSM changes every couple of years, there are no blank spots on the mental map anymore. It's it's, it's always like, oh no, <laughs> right. we have everything figured out as a species, as a culture, which is you know. It's hubris, I think. That's a great point you just made, Josh. What he was referring to out there is is the the American Psychological Association has this diagnostic and statistical manual that comes out uh, every few years. And I remember when I was in college, we studied, you know, the DSM-4. And since then, it's been the DSM-5. And all these things that were in the DSM-4 that I learned when I was in college and taking a psychology major um, that – you know, might have been classified as disorders or might have been classified as something pathological um, has now converted to, well, that's just kind of the way it is or things change. And and even in our modern world, we're constantly changing that. Well, and a great many of those uh, things that people go through are only known to the psychological community, psychiatric community, uh, through anecdotes and personal experience. I can tell you how I feel and then that we build, you know, a disorder around that. So I think that I think the DS, something like the DSM is, is a really uh, parsimonious microcosm of what people in the, in the supernatural realm are talking about. The fact that personal experience does matter and perception does matter. And uh, the fact that uh, we, even if we think we're doing our, our best to 
uh, understand and represent the world around us, we're constantly learning new things. So yeah, that's a little tangent there. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but I think it's a it's a valuable uh, thing to think about because um, you know, as you mentioned just there, uh, where do you think we get science from? <laughs> uh, it's from listening to people's experiences. Uh, you know, I I was talking with a skeptic friend, you know, not so long ago. And he said, well, Al, you know, I told him an extraordinary experience I had had. And, you know, really, I explained away just everything. And finally, I had something where I'm like, nope, nope, I don't think that's that that would be uh, disingenuous to explain that away, because really, I can't. And <laughs> and he said, and I answered to that, well, you know, Allison, I've learned not to trust my senses <laughs> or my perceptions and I'm like, dude, I understand what you're saying there because there are optical illusions, but you know, there are all kinds of illusions, let's just say. But if you didn't pay attention to experience, then we wouldn't have any science or any basis of knowledge at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. That's that's a really good point too. I mean, um, you know, uh perception is the basis of science, like you said, and some things are more easily to demonstrate for people's perceptions. You know, some things right. are more replicable than others. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's generally, ball lightning, which was sort of laughed at at one point, is generally accepted as a genuine phenomena uh, yeah. nowadays, but it's impossible to replicate. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So, you know, it's um, somebody that I, I, I follow and I'm, uh, am internet friends with, uh, a magician Gordon White once said that uh, you don't measure uh, quarterbacks performance in a laboratory and you don't measure tides in a sink, you know, so you have to, <laughs> there's, there's certain oh. parameters that have to be met that can't be met, you know, in the replicability of a, of a laboratory. And well, that's, that's a major stumbling block. That That's a, a great way to put it. And I, I just wanted to uh, ask you, Josh, you had mentioned something there before that, you know, fairy lore. I mean, that's what really motivated you and excited you. And I, really love reading about fairies too and i just just wanted to ask like what about the fairies gets to you um so i have to i have to sort of do a gut check every now and then because i think that at at, at one point um the term fairy was used basically the way that we use paranormal or supernatural now so in other words they'd say oh that's fairy so it's easy to go down this rabbit hole of everything seeming like it's all, it's all fairy lore, which, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of myself. Um, so I sort of had to check myself for that. But at the same time, there are specific things that were attributed to the fairies, as opposed to just the sort of concept of fairy in general, the fairies, the fae folk, the good folk that are highly resonant with, uh, the, uh, modern UFO contact experience. Um, you know, there was a point where I wasn't sure if they were really sort of describing the same thing. I'm sort of of the opinion now that they're definitely describing the same thing. Does that mean that we're misinterpreting, uh, alien abduction as fair? Does it mean that they, the people of the past were misinterpreting alien abduction as fairy abduction, or does it mean that we are misinterpreting fairy abduction as alien abduction? I don't know. I actually am kind of uh, fond of the idea that neither of them are accurately describing what we're going through. Um, but I think it's that sort of explicative power and these little resonances that you find um, that are that are really shocking. Um, one thing, for, for example, uh, something that I for the longest time thought that there was no real analog for in fairy lore 
uh, something I briefly touch upon in the book, which if I if I could do it again, I'd probably go into it a little in a little bit more detail. But um, this idea of um, the fairy blast. So the if you look at the etymology of the word blast, you know, blustery, a blast of wind. The idea that fairies traveled on whirlwinds, and if you offended them, you would get hit with a fairy blast that also turned into a blister, which is, again it's the same etymology here. Um, and the, and this sort of blister, this fairy blast, fairy blast blister. Uh, would manifest as either a blister or a tumor or a lump, and inside would be detritus. And <laughs> it's one of those things where I was like, "That's kind of an analog for the for the modern, you know, a, a alien implant phenomenon." Yeah. Um, yeah, even more really. interesting, I found I found some some tales from Newfoundland where fairy blasts tended to manifest in strings sticking out of the wound. Which sounded to me like Morgellons. Yes. Which, which I don't know enough about Morgellons. May or not, may not be a thing. Uh, may or may not be a tied to alien abduction. But people have said that it is. So it's just when you get to that level of specificity, I feel like I can say with confidence something mere, something talked about in either UFO lore or fairy lore is going to be mirrored in the other one to some degree. And to yeah. me, that really reinforces the fact that we're dealing with the, uh, the same big kettle of fish. And sometimes other phenomena as well, because you just mentioned that Morgellons thing where, you know, is uh, a controversial malady. Right. You know, they're still debating, you know, whether it's true or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, even high profile uh, people like Joni Mitchell, who uh, mm -hmm. claim to have suffered from it. But, you know, essentially you have these fibrous uh protrusions from your skin and i was uh reading uh, an exorcism case uh, about uh the possession of, of of someone from our area uh from uh the 19th century and it talked about the different uh in this article i found it it talked about the different uh things that were done you know to try to assist him and uh one uh, doctor came in a native doctor and uh, applied these compresses to this possessed person and then when he took off the compress there were all these fibers coming out of his skin huh. I i'll send you that one but i was like uh, yeah, oh my do. god you know because that it's just for me when i do research you know i'm i'm always looking into the past it sounds like what i'm doing is, is similar to what you are doing as well as you know I, i'm not necessarily you know the what's happening you know, the actual occurrences, you know, they're not easily, easily uh, quantified or qualified or categorized. But, um, you know, if you can look in the past and look at past documentation and see these strange confirmations of things that are being pr reported today, I think that's some kind of evidence. Well, I want to I want to go back here real quick and just emphasize how gross this stuff is we're talking about. <laughs> so when you're talking about a fairy blast, you are t you're talking about a fairy blast, you're talking about a blister. And when you pop that blister, there's something on the inside. Yeah, when basically. you have a zit a with gift. a string attached, you have a pimple with a string attached, and that's more gallons. So let's just realize that we're just like, oh, a fairy blast. A fairy blast sounds like something we're going to get at the Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that we're like, hell yeah, I want a fairy blast. And I'll take some extra M&Ms on it. Yeah, like, or whatever. You know, we're talking, a, we're, ta we're talking about a blister that when you pop the blister, instead of pus, out comes some extra crap yeah, that you like, don't know what it is. It's like a David Cronenberg film or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's serious body horror yeah. issues involved right. here that I want to make sure everybody gets through their head before you switch topics. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wish that, um, yeah, it's the, the, this pop culture 
idea of what fairies are is just something that you just constantly have to battle. I, I think that I was joking with somebody the other night um, that it's like the only thing that's more embarrassing than saying that you're interested in UFOs is that you're interested in fairies because yeah. people jump to the Tinkerbell thing and you'll be like, no, it's not not that cut and dry. <laughs> it's been a, a severe misrepresentation. But uh, back to you know back to what Allison was talking about too. I think comparativism is really where it's at. Um, and I think that's sort of the way that you went over a lot of hearts and minds in the, in the skeptical community, at least among my friends too, is to be, is to say, look, I don't, I'm not saying I know, I'm not saying it's aliens. No, I'm not saying I know what this is, but I'm saying that you have a lot of consistencies through cultures that should not have cross pollinated. Yeah. So does that mean that you know these are human archetypes that we all manifest somehow? I mean, that's sort of the tamer possibility really yeah. <laughs> you know, the, um, which is still not you know people sometimes poo-poo that in the paranormal community but if, even if that's true I mean that's a life-changing reality altering possibility itself that we all manifest these deep-seated uh, anxieties from you know among human beings um, so yeah I think that I think that comparativism is to, to be able to compare and to say I don't know what this is and I don't know what this is but they seem to be describing the same thing I think that's that's what really was my boat? Yeah, there's definite data there. You know, mm-hmm. people are always asking you to, where's the data? Look at the data. Uh, what you serve up, Joshua, is the data. And, <laughs> well, yeah, that's exciting. What I like here, though, too, though, is that we're not just, when are talking about cross cultural um, fears and stuff, like every. every human being is going to be afraid that their child is going to be abducted. You know, but the thing is, it's not just the realistic fears. Like if you live in Oklahoma, you can realistically be afraid of a tornado. Right. If you, you know, if you live in a jungle or whatever, you can be afraid of the, you know, the weird diseases and huge animals and stuff like that that are in the jungle and being you know, okay, I'm afraid of a tiger eating my I'm afraid of a dingo eating my baby. <laughs> you know? Like I am afraid of these things uh, which are real tangible things. You can be afraid if of another tribe coming in, like they ran out of kids or whatever, they're coming in to steal children for the next generation. That's a real thing to be afraid right. of. To be afraid of a fairy sneaking into your house, <laughs> grabbing your kid, and you know, leaving or leaving a simulacrum of your child that is you know sickly and fake in in his or her place, uh, and to have that be across cultures, that's something I think is is remarkable. What we're talking about here, because we think of we think of people in a, in the past age as being superstitious and everything, but remember they also had to be incredibly pragmatic. Because yeah. unlike us, they had to deal with death on a a daily different basis. I have never, besides a funeral home, I've never seen a dead person in real life. Mm. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm 41 years old. And think about the kind of stuff you would see if you're in a tribe of 150 people 2,000 years ago. It's just completely different experience. And so I think we need to acknowledge a little bit of that when we go into why why are these different cultures experiencing the same thing? And also, can you get into some of the cross-cultural stuff you find in your book, John? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I say at one point in the book that I feel like this sort of touches on what you're talking about. I feel like explaining the changeling phenomena purely with medicine makes as much sense as explaining folklore with medicine makes as much sense as explaining medicine with folklore. And by, by that, I mean that if you're purely looking at, you know, this idea that changelings were, um, you know, all, every every example of the changeling phenomena represented a congenital birth defect or something along those lines. You are really robbing that sort of concept of a lot of its explicative power in terms of what it says about the way that these people live their 
lives socially, economically, um, you know, uh, you know, the sort of pressures that were put on the family. I mean, again, that's all without going into the paranormal field, um, which I do think that there's, again, a, a sort of grain of truth uh, to that as well. Um, you know, I just just to give an idea, I always like to talk about this statistic because it's it's incredibly shocking. Um, if there's a there's a book that came out uh, by uh, this lady named uh, Elaine Farrell, a most diabolical deed that looked at uh, infanticide just in Ireland, which of course is an island that's uh, about the size of Indiana, just between 1850 and 1900. Uh, so it's a 50 year period. Only children murdered less than three years old. She found 4,645 cases in a 50 year period. Just children under three. So if they're three years in one day, she didn't include them in her survey. So it's a, you know, th- th- that's that's a, a, a you know psychocultural uh, aspect that has to be looked at. You know, the 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 idea that families had resource strain put on them that they couldn't deal with, and this was sort of in some in some instances a scapegoat. So that's one way to look at it. Another thing that frustrates me with looking at. Uh, the changing phenomena purely through a medical lens is that uh, a lot of times medical ailments were caused by the supernatural. They didn't mean that the person that had them was supernatural. You know, uh, for example, uh, a uh, a witch might cause a cleft palate, but someone with a cleft palate wasn't a witch. It was understood as a medically treatable condition. So I think that, uh, you know, we, you had mentioned sort of this idea that we look upon the our ancestors as being sort of uh, backwards and primitive. I think that we do, sometimes do them a disservice in that yeah. respect. Um, but uh, in terms of sort of the, the cross-cultural implications, uh, you'll find fairy lore amongst pretty much any um, any region's indigenous people um for example i just read the other day that uh there is not a single uh first nations tribe in the americas that doesn't have some sort of belief in some sort of fairy type people and and cross-culturally they're almost always almost always short in stature subterranean dwelling and love to take children um and you'll find this um for example there's uh there's a version of a sort of uh sort of African changeling. It's not quite a changeling, but it's got a lot of the, um, it's got a lot of the hallmarks of it um, among the Yoruba of Nigeria and Benin. It's called the Abiku, which are uh, the race of these elemental spirits who will actually um, take up residence in a uh, pregnant woman's uh, belly and will actually substitute their spirit for the, uh, for the spirit of the human child and will come out and their job is to make the parents just feel awful, like have a shortened lifespan um, and to just be really peevish and cantankerous. And the idea is that the more money that they throw at getting their child to uh, feel better, that's money that this uh, that this abiku will actually take into the afterlife. So it's sort of like a, a get-rich-quick scheme for, for this little changeling. And that's it's interesting because there's so many there's so many parallels between that and sort of the changeling motif. You know, if even if you look outside Western Europe, you'll see these things. Um, something that's really interesting. We mentioned this idea of the fairy blast, this idea that the fairies could travel on winds. Um, the uh, the Hopi of the American Southwest felt that uh, whirlwinds could cause miscarriages. You know, of course, the, uh, the the British fairies would come in on a whirlwind and abduct people, especially children. Um, so there's a you know there's sort of a parallel there as well. You'll find that similar beliefs regarding whirlwinds amongst both um, Jews and Muslims in the Middle East. These are not cultures that should have, have, have you know have have discussed or had this transmission of. Uh, of shared cultural beliefs. Um, similarly, you know, uh, one of the most efficacious means of uh, preventing child abduction in the first place was the implementation of iron, which you'll find uh, 
literally all across the world. You'll find it in India. You'll find people driving iron nails into trees um, in China. Um, and you'll, of course, find some really <laughs> striking stories of people in the British Isles leaving scissors in the bed of children or dangling. <laughs> My scariest one was, I believe was, I believe it was in Yorkshire. There was a, a child who had an, an iron knife dangled right above its, <laughs> above its nose and its crib to protect them from the fairies. Um, Everybody doesn't do that? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I got one in just the other room. I could walk over there and... Take it out and cut a stick with it. Well, you know, that's, you know, we were talking about why I'd sort of come to this book and, and also like what sort of inspired me to write it. I kind of wanted to write something because people heard that I wrote books about the paranormal and, and supernatural. Neither of my first books are really that unsettling or scary. And I wanted to write something that was a little bit more, made me a little bit squeamish, you know, yeah. and was sort of a little bit more creepy. And uh, man, I, this, this book takes you to some dark places. I mean, you know, when you find yourself writing about the harvesting and gold leaf plating of uh, fetuses in Thailand for black magic purposes, you know that your life has taken a strange and possibly wrong turn. Oh, um, it's just dark, dark stuff. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the means of prescribing, you know, the, the most common cost cross cultural um, means of ridding yourself of a changing was abuse. I mean, it was, um, for example, in the case of, uh, well, we'll return to the British Isles in a second, but for the case of the Abiku, um, after the child was dead, you would slice its skin and stuff hot peppers inside and spices that supposedly would make the spirit of the, uh, the deceased alien other world child, um, put them in pain but you know in other parts of western europe you saw children uh being abandoned burned boiled um drowned all in this effort to quote unquote put the fairy out of them uh you know a lot of people have talked about parallels between the ufo abduction experience and changelings in terms of the way that the alien hybrids look like in terms of their appearance whenever people are introduced but there are a lot of other little 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 bits and pieces here and there that are connective to the modern hybrid uh, theory that I don't think people have really realized. And abuse is one of them. Um, you know, I think that there is some sort of through line between children suspected of being fairy babies, being abused, miraculously returning, whether or not that's a, you know, a, a depossession of the child or, uh, you know, the, the child has been, uh, snapped back from an altered state of consciousness, but, but the child returns and now has uh, often a spiritual uh, sort of path in their life. Plenty of, plenty of children rescued from the fairy realm uh, would become grow to become ministers, or they would have special abil abilities like telekinesis and clairvoyance. Well, uh, one of the things that John Mack pointed out was the prevalence of alien abductees to have abuse earlier in their lives. And what do alien abductees often come back with? They often come back with a more spiritual bent. They often come back with not not often talked about, but profound synchronicities, telekinesis, less telekinesis, but more telepathy, poltergeist activity in their homes, you know, all those sort of things. Abuse is also a strong component of the shamanic path in indigenous cultures. You know, uh, people would have a sort of brush with death as an early child, be taken to the spirit world, and after that point, they would be on a spiritual path and would be able to have certain ideas about, you know, where the herds of, of animals were moving for the hunt and what the weather was going to be like and would act as spiritual intercessors for the tribe. So that's a consistency that I think has, has sort of gone underappreciated between both you know, between changelings and alien abductees and, and, you know, shamanic initiates. Well, number one, that's, I mean, terrifying and dark in its own kind of way, because mm -hmm. we even think about, you know, one of my friends was a, uh, paranormal investigator in this group in Milwaukee and he eventually I mean he had a criminal justice major and he eventually uh, after going on a dozen investigations was like these are all just child abuse cases and I 
I can't even take it anymore. Like, and, and so that idea of, um, you know, I, I've always had that idea then that sometimes when people talk about poltergeist cases or that, you know, even in famous cases like the Enfield poltergeist, mm-hmm. a lot of times they are, um, it seems to be a paranormal thing covering up some kind of abuse. Yes. Even the demon, the demon house in Indiana, mm-hmm. where you talk about the kind of lives that those kids had led before, you know, starting to exhibit paranormal phenomena and possession and things like that. It's not like those kids had a leave it to beaver existence. <laughs> right. You know. And and so you think about that, and you know the first thing that comes to my mind is always the thing. Well, you know, parents do some gnarly stuff to their children, horrible things, and then um, you know it's it's the fairy's fault or it's the it's the poltergeist's fault. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question, and I I, I try to sort of bang this drum in the book that uh, a lot of times this was an excuse for people to have one less mouth to feed. I mean, can you imagine in the scenario of, of bringing in the medically uh, afflicted child into the changeling lore? Um, you know, you've got you're in the middle of a famine and you have a child that is born uh, with a mental disability is never going to be able to help around the the family farm um, and yet is going to be one more plate to serve at dinner. You know, what do you do in that scenario? Well, a lot of people, a lot of people found this as a way to socially acceptably um, get rid of their children. I mean, there were, there are people there, there was a grandmother, um, I believe in County Tipperary who actually was acquitted for drowning her grandchild. Um, but, you know, by a trial, <laughs> by a trial jury was, you know, found not guilty because she was leg- legitimately believed that she was trying to rid herself of the fairy. Um, so uh, yeah. when you're talking about 1850 to 1900 and you were talking about 1850 to 1900 mm-hmm. in Ireland, I mean, that's the end of the potato famine. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's what we talk about even Allison and my our own Irish ancestors. You know, they're like, no potatoes, we're out of here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and I don't think – I think, you know, that, that people talk about the potato famine in the U.S., but uh, if, if you really do some research on how profound that was for Ireland, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's astonishing. Um, you know, and of course, I think even – there, there, there were people who even blamed the potato famine on fairies. This idea that this blight swept through the land and it was caused by, you know, uh, angry fairy folk. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I want to, and I, I've tried to emphasize the fact that a lot of this is just garbage people doing garbage things to their children. Um, the question is, you know, whether or not. Trauma. I mean, you see this in near-death experiencers too, who return with you know increased abilities. Does trauma somehow uh, a serve a purpose in some people's lives, which I think is a nice counter to you know this very Western uh, physicalist idea that uh, that uh, suffering has no value. Um, does, does, does trauma serve some purpose in the greater scheme of things? And does it perhaps bring by being closer to the veil, does it facilitate communication of somehow, um, with, with that, uh, extended consciousness realm? I don't know. I think that, I think that sometimes it might, but like you said, I think that, um, I mean, no, I don't think there is no shortage of people who took advantage of this to do absolutely horrible things. And so then, what do you think is some of the most cases when you were exploring this and when you were looking at uh, different cases in your research? To you, what are the most not necessarily convincing, but but surprising 
uh, things that you found when you were exploring this book? Like you said, like it's easy to dismiss all these things in a lot of ways. Like you said, the the physicalist mindset, the materialist mi- mindset that you're like, okay, well, this is just going to be abuse or this is just going to be autism or this is just going to – like when you were looking in, what did you find that you were like, oh, man, I can't, you know, I can't believe this. Yeah, what were the unexplained things that you found? There's a great uh, case of a servant girl from uh, 1645 by the name of Anne Jeffries. Uh, and part of the reason that she is um, interesting is because um, she wasn't necessarily a changeling, but she did claim to be abducted by the fairies. Part of the thing that you have to parse out when you look at fairy abduction specifically is that it was often used as a euphemism and sometimes believed um, to be the cause or underlying cause of illness or death. So if a child died, sometimes they weren't dead. They were just taken by the fairies, which I think has a lot of uh, importance and a lot of uh, bearing on sort of this combination between fairies and the dead, uh, which doesn't get talked about, I don't think, enough. Um, but this idea that, all, you know, well, for example, there's a an ancient poem that says that uh, after someone dies, there are three roads, one to heaven, one to hell, and one to fairyland. Um, so while not endorsing the idea of this as limbo, the idea that, you know, perhaps that's another place that the soul can go or, you know, staying here on our realm, on our earthly plane, while in spirit form is sort of fairyland. But Oh, that's a, per- that's a perfect idea, though, because the idea that if a child hasn't been baptized yet, they have right. to go to, you know, that's, you know, the Catholic idea that they go to limbo, this place between heaven and hell, because they haven't been baptized, so they're not Christian mm-hmm. yet, so they can't just go into and be accepted by Jesus. But they didn't do anything bad because they're innocent Mm-hmm. So they can't go to hell either and be punished by the devil. So they go to this place in the middle, this limbo. And the idea of when you die, I'd, uh, hey, I'd pick fairyland every time <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, in some cultures, for example, in uh, in Cornwall, unbaptized children who passed away became pixies um, in, in almost every fairy tradition uh, – with a where there's a Christian uh, culture dominating, uh, fairies had the most power over children in the liminal stage of being unbaptized after birth, before baptism. That's when children were most at risk of being abducted. Um, and Jeffries is interesting because she's sort of an outlier. She um she had so she had fallen ill, as opposed to being abused or actually apparently being in a in a in a in a unsuitable household and while she was ill she said that she was actually among the fairies which to me sort of suggests that means that she was in an altered state of consciousness and while she was there she took a fairy lover um who uh who uh, actually spurned some jealousy or caused some jealousy among some of the other fairies who eventually in their jealous rage covered her eyes and she heard a sound like a you know a, a, like a millions of flies buzzing in her ears which that buzzing sound can be heard in both altered states of consciousness and the modern UFO abduction scenario. But when she returned, um, she uh, had the ability to heal through touch and uh, clairvoyance. And for years, people would visit her um, as sort of a, a, a cure, a curer and a prophetess and, and whatnot. So I think that's, um, that's one of the more compelling cases because there is a historical record. I mean, a lot of these changeling stories sit at this weird intersection of um, folklore and fiction and, you know, a little bit of truth. But whenever you can find a story like that, um, that talks about fairy abduction in a very uh, tangible way, I think that's, uh, I think that's, um, uh, that suggests that there's a little more something going on. There was also a a child um, from, uh, oh Lord, I believe it was Wales, um, by the name of Ghetto Bach, 
uh, who was a young child who loved to sort of ramble around the countryside and uh, would often uh, disappear and claim that he was playing with fairies. And uh, one day he disappeared, and two years later he reappeared, having not aged a day on his mother's doorstep uh, in the same clothes, saying that he had a, had been dancing with the fairies. Um, so it's it's cases like that that I find, you know, I, I think that if you mix cases like that that are a little bit more a little bit more credible. If you mix those with this underlying changeling medical phenomena, um, reality, I think you might start to approximate something that gets to a little bit more of an objective truth about what's going on in these cases. Well, when you're talking about the fairy lover, that the first of all, the first thing I thought of was, um, well, a Wisconsin author and the King killer series, the whole Kvothe, uh, in the second book, uh, the wise man's fear, I think it's called, um, the sequel to The Name of the Wind, he spends like six months in fairyland and it's all about making love to fairies. <laughs> so this, you know, because like the idea, like the fairy lover, like, well, even the same, you know, is everything compatible? Does all the equipment work? I mean, <laughs> this idea that Anne Jeffries went over to the other side and someone took a liking to her in, the, in a romantic interest kind of way. I mean, that there you go with the alien abductions and the women being impregnated by, you know, by the UFO and stuff, and and then what happens is there's jealousy, and then she's forced back or things. I mean, th- there's a lot of connections I think to to people's modern um, sense of you know what happens when you're in the belly of the spacecraft. Yeah, no, I I completely agree, and and that you know that sort of motif of of mixing bloodlines with the other world can be found in obviously you know you think about the ideas of the nephilim in the in the you know in the Bible and uh, in Eastern traditions the idea that uh, Emperors would have uh, the blood of the dragon in, mixed into their, you know, into their bloodline. Um, I even found a uh, an Indian case, uh, a, a, a pretty old Indian case, where a uh, it was believed in folklore that a man would, uh, a mysterious man would uh, steal a woman in a whirlwind and take her up uh, to, you know, the highest top of a tree and make love to her and give her, you know, this half human child. So it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, really common motif. And I, 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 I do feel like you said, I feel like it's, it's a little bit, you have to acknowledge that there's a similarity between modern UFO lore and those older cases. Um, and you know, our, our, uh, physicalist science fiction drenched reduct, I would, I would say reductive, mm-hmm. um, sort of Western paradigm is that we want to make these into little scientists in spacecraft. But I think that, you know, very rarely do people, people often entertain the idea that the gods were aliens, but they rarely entertain the idea that the aliens are gods because that's superstitious, <laughs> which is right. just, you know, kind of have a chuckle at. Another one for your whirlwind saying, um, in uh, the in, in Oneida tradition, actually in the, the larger uh, Haudenosaunee tradition, you know, people uh, you know commonly call them the Iroquois, but that's not what they call themselves. So the mm-hmm. the Haudenosaunee uh, people, um, which includes the Oneida, the Mohawk, uh, there there's a uh, six yeah, the nations. Whole confederation, actually, yeah. yeah, the confederation, right. yeah. There, um, the creation story, the sky went. A woman creation story includes uh, Sky Woman's uh, daughter being impregnated by the West Wind. So, uh, interesting. I think, interesting. Yeah, and that's how the 
the uh, twins who ultimately were the creators came about is you know through being impregnated by the uh, the daughter being impregnated by the West Wind. Well, we've all seen that great Marilyn Monroe picture, right? With the, <laughs> yeah, knocking up her skirt. What do you think the wind's doing? The wind's a perv. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so, so uh, Joshua, like, do you have any kind of uh, like quick bestiary you could give us? You know about the the most frightening. Uh, or you know, disturbing stories you you've run into cross culturally uh, regarding child abduction. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's it's, uh, it's not, all pretty frightening. Yeah, it's all really unsettling. Um, you know, we we've spent a lot of this time talking about uh, talking about the, um, the 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 fairy side of things, but I think a lot of the because maybe because it hits a little bit closer to home. Um, the uh, the concept of UFO abduction is is just as unsettling uh, because you get some you get some real uh, really quite um, innocent descriptions of these encounters which just shouldn't shouldn't have this consistency and shouldn't be this unsettling. I mean, I open the story with a uh, open the book rather with a story about a child um, who was a who was a it was in California and uh, noticed his mom's copy of Bud Hopkins intruders and started telling these stories about, you know, those being his people that used to take him aboard spacecrafts where he was born and uh, would poke him and prod him and fly him out the window and then return him back to bed. And uh, he was actually speaking with a UFO investigator. And he said that after, after some time that the child sort of clammed up because he knew that his friends would get mad at him for speaking with, with the UFO investigator, which is, you know, that's the point in the, uh, that's the point in the, the, the film where, you know, the, uh, the, the strings kick in and <laughs> the pizzicato. <laughs> <laughs> right. The things, yeah. the things change. Act, act three starts. And then it's now we're, now we're down to where the aliens are going to come after it. Yeah, exactly. Um, trying to think of some other stuff, uh, right off the top of my head. Um, you know, I mean, they're, uh, you, you talk about the, uh, the whirlwind, uh, aspect, which uh, I think maybe if you want to at some point talk about uh, talk about the David Politis missing four one one stuff, because yeah. I think that that ties in and is germane to this as well. But I, uh, I, I would I would love to talk about that because you know we were talking about cases you know essentially in an antiquity you know and then up to the nineteenth century and and then you know that that case that you opened the book with you know that was in the eighties right right and, right and so. You know, stuff is still going on uh, when oh, you yeah, talk absolutely. about missing four one one. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, um, the effects upon people, um, the effects upon people, are very consistent, but the means by which these things happen always change. Um, you know, uh, I guess what I'm thinking about specifically is this idea that you had fairies, and then you had people in airships and then you had um then you had sort of the contactee era which was characterized by you know voluntary experiences that were uh that were really quite pleasant um and then you this all sort of morphed into the the alien abduction era where you had these unpleasant experiences that were very uh involuntary non-consensual and now i Sort of suspect that the missing four one one thing is is kind of another unfolding of this um, uh, of this sort of concept of people and, and quite a lot of children um, who who disappear. And if you look at a lot of these, uh, if you look at a lot of these 
cases. Um, a lot of the criteria, I mean, it's sort of like a paranormal Rorschach test, right? It says mm-hmm. more about it says more about what you're interested in than it does objectively what's happening. Right. And so I saying that I realize the irony in saying that it seems to map on <laughs> the irony in me saying that it seems to map on to fairy lore cl- more closely than anything else. I mean, it's established at length that uh, fairies tend to be more active in inclement weather, which is something you find in a lot of these missing 411 cases. They um, had a, a, prev- a preference for um, uh, intelligent males, uh, which you'll see in some of these four, missing 411 cases. Similarly, you'll find, uh, you know, in some of the missing 411 cases, uh, people with mental disabilities uh, disappear. Oftentimes, they're the ones who are who are found because they can't articulate what's happened to them, which, of course, that sort of ties into what we've been talking about with changelings and that sort of um, cognitive, uh, sort of a congenital uh, disability idea. Um, you will find that people returning, if, they're, if they are found, are in a trance. Um, you'll find if people are found dead, they'll often be missing articles of clothing. Well, one of the means of returning from fairyland, if you found yourself there was to uh, take off your clothes and, and invert them, you know, not saying that everybody is aware of this, but maybe that's describing something that people are compelled to do when they're in this state or something. But that, no, that is something people, sometimes when people find people dead or whatever, mm-hmm. they're like, they, you know, with the clothes inside out, right. or it looks like the clothes were put back on them. Right. You know, that, that idea and the clothes are put back on incorrectly. Like the fairies don't know about tag. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you'll find, you'll tag find, goes uh, on the inside, guys. Of, of alien abductions where people are wearing clothes inside out too, which you know I don't know if that means, you know, it's just one of those things that supposedly it's uh, who knows maybe something about doing that the inversion of the normal facilitates a return from the other world. Um, but uh, you know you'll find a prevalence of uh, streams and boulders uh, in missing four one one cases. People disappearing in those which are traditionally fairy environments. I mean you know it's been something that's a fact that gets propped up a lot and talked about a lot. But I think it's still worth saying is that uh, you know in Iceland they still you know divert roads around boulders that are supposedly fairy houses. It's a very close association with that as well. And then something that Pilatus himself said: there seem to be a lot of people who disappear while berry picking. Well, if you look in the res- if you look in the literature. That's one of the most common places to encounter berry, uh, berries. <laughs> fairies <is> around berries. <laughs> berries like the berries. berries. Little berries. You know, uh, there's there's an entire there's a, a wonderful book that I I recommend um, for anybody who's interested called The Good People. It's a collection of essays, and uh, the editor of the essay collection actually contributes a chapter that's all about uh, berry picking in fairy lore in Newfoundland because there's a you know large transmission of of uh, Irish culture. Uh, over to that part of the world. And uh, it's, we're talking about like maybe just shy of two dozen cases, modern 20th century cases where children uh, are found in a daze after visiting berry bushes. And when they can remember, they talked about encountering these little people um, who, you know, who brought them back. Also, people, kids who went to go berry picking and disappeared as well. So, um, you know, I, I I think it's, but at the same time, it's it's disheartening because I see all these parallels with this that honestly I think map on better than um, a serial killer roaming the national parks. Honestly, map on better than Bigfoot somehow uh, managing to control the weather. Um, you know, map on uh, somehow better than aliens hanging around berry bushes. But I don't see a lot of people really talking about how this is this is kind of the the piece of the this is this is this is the jigsaw puzzle piece that almost fits you know there are some rough edges and you kind of have to wedge it in there a little bit but i don't see a lot of people talking about that and i think that uh 
part of that's that fairy stigma, the idea that you hear fairy tales and you're like, oh, ha ha ha, fairies, you know. But um, right, yeah, and yeah. and David David Pallett, um, you know, he doesn't uh, attribute anything in specific for all these disappearances. But and and that's what we're talking about here. If you're you're new to the missing four one one, you know. Uh, David Pilatus is this researcher who has looked into uh, disappearances in the national parks, um, you know, over decades and, you know, found some really uh, unsettling uh, comparisons uh, between those disappearances. And yeah, so, um, so, you know, one of those things is, yeah, was the kid near a berry bush? You know, was was the kid the last in the line? What was the kid wearing? Like certain colors. Uh, yeah, I mean, there certain are... colors could offend the fairy folk too. You know, if you wore red, that was bad. If you wore, uh, you know, in sort of an inversion of what we associate with St. Patrick's Day, if you wore green, that was actually bad and might get their attention. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So, no, okay. our fa- fairies, our fairies, bl- bloods or crips is the big thing. <laughs> like, are they sp- like, what are you supposed to wear when you're in fairy land? Yeah. Probably, probably yeah, not crips. <laughs> Probably not because they uh, had no blood. <laughs> Sorry, probably not bloods because they had no blood, rather. Um, the idea was that uh, there are a lot of things that you hear about why fairies had sort of aversions to certain colors. Um, you know, the idea with green was that it was sort of reserved for them. This is our color. Don't wear green. That was such a profound uh, fear that uh, a series of uh, sort of disasters, including a uh, fire in Newfoundland, was actually attributed to the issue- issuing of green postage stamps because they felt that the fairies were envious of the green postage stamps. Uh, the red thing, the red color thing, um, it's interesting. You'll find some lore that says that red could repel fairies, some that it would, red would attract fairies. Um, the idea was that red... Um, sort of either reminded them of the fact that they were bloodless, um, similar to the idea that sharp instruments like uh, like knives and whatnot, swords that we've talked about, reminded them that if they got pricked, they wouldn't have any blood and they could never find salvation because they weren't human. That's sort of a Christianized uh, idea of that. Some people said that, you know, the idea that uh, fairies avoided red uh, was, you know, because it reminded them of fire, which we've, you know, talked about a little bit as being sort of a remedy for uh, for for for, ha- for having fairies is to is to claim that fire is part of, uh, you know, as, as using fire as a threat. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are certain things. I mean, those tie into things that you can do to attract or or ward off fairies. Yeah. So um, let's get practical, Joshua, because a lot of us are going to be this summer going to the national parks. So how <laughs> fo- folklore wise. From all the research you've done, all the cross-cultural connections, how can we protect ourselves and our children? Should we all be wearing iron nails around our neck, or you know, what what can we do? <laughs> well, I'm putting I'm putting the iron knife above my baby's bed tonight. <laughs> I do not endorse that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, carry, honestly, carrying a, carrying a bit of iron. You know, there was one uh, folklorist who said that uh, a, a nail was as efficacious as an iron uh, as an iron sword would work. Um, Christian iconography supposedly would work. Uh, carrying around hagstones, which are sort of these stones that you might find by the seaside with some natural holes in them, uh, placed in your pocket might uh, keep them keep them out. Uh, tying a bit of red string around a child was considered a a, a way to prevent them from being abducted um again this idea that sometimes it enrages the fairies sometimes it does it sometimes it gets them uh sometimes it repels them it's sort of <laughs> sort of a crapshoot sure. um 
all these things are you know, carrying a bit of breadcrumb or a bit of salt in your pocket uh, would would uh, also uh, keep them away. Uh, the idea, you know, salt has you know, uh, is sort of almost like a primitive antibiotic, but it could also ward off decay and death because it has preservative properties. And bread seems miraculous because it, you know, basically. Um, has allowed humankind to have the sort of agriculture as they have. It seems like a divine gift. So those are all things that you could do. Um, but, you know, uh, chief among them was always get your baby christened as soon as possible. <laughs> right. Don't get your baby uh, hauled off to fairyland. Yeah. Well, you, you know, Josh, we could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff, and I'm really enjoying the conversation. But we're almost out of time, and I kind of wanted to get to, as someone who this is your third uh, paranormal themed book, you obviously have a, a fascination and a really deep knowledge of uh, fairy lore and all this kind of stuff. So as you were going through this particular book, what changed in your perception of the phenomena or in your belief system or anything like that? So when you started the book, did you have a certain set of beliefs that by the end of the book, it had changed your mind or altered your perception? Yes. Um, over the course of research, I found more and more problems um, with hypnotic regression. I think it's an effective tool for uh, behavioral modification, but it's not necessarily effective or shouldn't be used as bulletproof of uh, an experience. Now, at the same time, I, I do cite a lot of hypnotically regressed uh, you know, contact experiencers because even if it is – even if – their what happened to them isn't quite as they remember they, they remember under hypnotic regression that it's still interesting that there are motivic parallels between you know their experiences and, and older folklore so that's sort of one thing that i came around on the other thing that i came around on really is that uh it was disingenuous of me to write off uh to write off the alien hybrid hybridization program as sort of silly bunk, which I honestly did to a certain degree. Um, I still don't think it, I don't think that a lot of, I don't think that there are a lot of people interpreting it as it for what it truly is. Um, I think that, uh, I, th I think that it's more about uh, manipulation and, uh, and theater, but I think that there's something significant to uh to what's happening to people who recall you know being taken aboard a ufo and seeing their seeing their uh their hybrid child something else that i sort of started to suspect and again i hope that i change my mind because i think that if anybody gets stuck in, in a mode of thinking it means that they uh, aren't growing but i've started playing with the idea that um the entirety of the paranormal isn't kind of just one, one big ghost story. I mean, you know, you have this very close fairy association with the dead that we mentioned. Um, you know, there are plenty of parallels that you can draw between, um, the near death experience and, uh, and alien abduction. Some alien abductees have actually seen, um, deceased loved ones in the craft. Um, you know, I talk about Bigfoot a little bit in the book. Um, you know, maybe Bigfoot is a Neanderthal ghost. So sometimes I wonder if they if we're not just dealing with this giant, as cheesy as it sounds, everything is kind of a spiritual, plain ghost story sort of uh, sort of uh, solution to all this. Who knows? I don't know. Like I said, I hope I don't stay there for very long. But that's that's an idea that sort of uh, that got stuck in me after you know getting halfway through this book. That's an interesting thought, Josh, because I've had that exact same kind of thing. Like 
And that's almost a full circle type of thing. Because when you go back to, you know, when we go back to tribal thinking or we go back to thinking of, uh, you know, before what we consider the the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment and all that kind of stuff, everything was. It's like this is the work of God or this is the work of the spirits and everything is our side and then the other side, whatever lies over there. And that's going to be, you know, demons and uh, spirits and the dead and all this kind of thing when now we have this well Bigfoot's actually a, a certain kind of you know a, like uh, an aust- australopithecine or something you <laughs> right, know, we, right. we go back to that and then the aliens come from Cygnus Beta and you know ghosts are actually visitors from a different dimension so I- instead of having all of these different cabinets or you know uh, categories we put everything in this is scientific and this is extraterrestrial and this is spiritual it I've had that same kind of thought, my, exactly what you're talking about. Like, no, it might, it might just all be the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's, I think the fact that people are more willing to, because, because, I mean, honestly, the flesh and blood, Bigfoot, and uh, nuts and bolts, alien spacecraft ideas, I think are a little bit on the wane, and so some of these more alternative ideas are having a little bit more of a resurgence. And I, I would draw that closely to a sort of mini theory that I've been kicking around in my head of this constant cycle that mankind goes through from paganism to religion to atheism, which leads to people turning back to paganism, which leads people to wanting to codify it with religion, people rejecting religion in terms of atheism. And if you look at the way that sort of paganism, neo-paganism is on the rise, I wonder if that we're not just seeing sort of the symptoms of that cultural shift in the realm of the paranormal, you know? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and two, you know, I'm, I'm uh, doing a, a close close reading of the Mothman prophecies right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just uh, surprised about, you know, written in 1975, you know, how applicable it, is, it still is today, you know, and, and how yeah. his, his uh, John Keel's ideas about, you know, hey, I, I'm not going to get fixated on, you know, different phenomenon. You know, I'm going to look at this holistically and... Right. And try to determine, you know, what might be going on behind this. So that that sounds, you know, like we're we're very much all of us are very much in that camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really well put. I think time is I think time is going to continue to be kind to John Keel and a lot of his ideas. And plus it's a really fun book. So let's not forget <laughs> that is, the Mothman Prophecies is really fun. Yeah. It is. It definitely so, is. Uh, speaking of fun books, um, I want everybody to go out and pick up a copy of Thieves in the Night because, uh, well, maybe stories about child abduction aren't necessarily classified <laughs> fun, yeah. as fun. <laughs> yeah. The exploration of the unknown and getting into all this kind of folklore and classical research and things like that you've done, Josh. It's, it's fun to visit that kind of... Uh, research and that that quality of authorship, and we have, uh, certainly as I've, I'm a guy that reads a lot of paranormal books, yeah. and substance. I'm a guy that hates a lot of, that a guy that hates a lot of paranormal yeah. books. It's fun to see some substance, yeah. and we want to thank you. For well, that. I really yes, thank it. you, thank you so much. And, and so, if people want to pick up their copy of Thieves in the Night, where can they go get it? Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, Kindle edition is not out yet, but should be out soon. But so far, uh, you know, uh, paperback in both those from both those vendors. Um, if you want to stay tuned, because I've already had some people asking about a hardcover edition, which my other two books came out, and I don't think there's been any news on that, but you will find updates on all that at my website, joshuacutchen.com, as well as links to where you can buy the book. Fantastic. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Well, let's all make sure our doors are locked when we go to bed. Absolutely. Well, I got uh, 
Adeline, my child, is sleeping in the other room, and I've she's got an iron knife in her hands tonight as she went to perfect. bed. That's perfect. What she, that's what she sleep with. We arm her. We arm her with iron before she goes to bed, so the fairies can't change her out. No need for teddy bears in your house. Hell no! Now we have cuddle iron up knives. With that, <laughs> cuddle up with that iron weapon. That's right. Like, <laughs> she knows how to keep safe. Twenty-one months old. She knows how to keep safe. Anyway, uh, we want to thank Josh again. Make sure you check OthersidePodcast.com/slash. 204 and that's where you're going to find links to all of josh's books you can pick up thieves in the night right away i've got a copy i've been made through about half of it i haven't finished it yet um but i am gonna make it to not everybody who we have on the show i like read their books to the end but josh i can't wait to get to the end of this book it's really well done so uh make sure you check out josh's work and pick up a copy of thieves in the night you're gonna love it and you know we haven't written too many songs about fairies wendy well that's true we haven't you know morgan lefay's kind of in that realm. She's a supernatural character, but yeah, not she necessarily is. a fairy. Yeah, I mean, she's, well, or at least, because she's also a, like, a, is she a witch? Is she a right, fairy? Right, that's true. Depends on which version of the story you're talking about. Right, is she, you know, um, just the, the the female opposite of Merlin? You know, that's the kind of thing, there's there's so many versions of the, the Arthurian legend that, <laughs> anyway, our version of Morgan Le Fay, we did use that for our, our last time we had Josh on, we were talking about his last book. Um, but today we wrote a brand new song for Josh, and, you know, just based on what he was talking about, there's a lot of inspiration behind uh, people that you know suddenly becoming... Maybe people you don't recognize anymore. Doing things that you, you never believe they did. And sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. But either way, uh, here's a rocker. And this one's called The Changeling. Crawl for a lifeline, then you go AWOL. You know it's time before you fall to put on the brakes before you hit the wall. Solo on the bottom shelf in a black hole is where you find yourself. Where you're gonna go when there's no one else to put up with the crap that you're trying to sell. And I don't know if you look lately, but you ain't the same person that you used to be. And I don't know if you look lately But you ain't the same person that you used to be Go hard until you hurt Play the wrong card and you're in the dirt In the graveyard calling red alert You're a cardiac arrest in a miniskirt you prefer it's a swan song to who we thought you were you're so headstrong put on your spurs and get out of town until you find a cure and i don't know if you look lately but you ain't the same person that you used to be whoa, whoa, whoa. you're the changeling that just ain't my thing whoa. 
but you ain't the same person that you used to be. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. The people we really don't want to change are our Patreon community. <laughs> no way. They're perfect the way they are. Right. That, if you are a Patreon member of the See You on the Other Side community, you just stay exactly how you are. Like stay if weird. I was, if I was writing in your yearbook, it would just be stay weird. Have a great summer. <laughs> See you next month. See you on the other side. Anyway, our Patreon community, that's where we talk with our members every month about some kind of interesting paranormal topic. We take uh, ideas for the show. Um, we start to foster a relationship about some of the weird topics that we talk about in the show, get feedback, and find out how to make the show better. And the Patreons support what we do. Um, they help make See You on the Other Side and new songs happen every week. And they're a lot of fun to hang out with. Yeah, and that's that's Turns probably out. the best. That's probably the best bonus. <laughs> it is a great perk. So is thank you, Patreons, and an extra special shout out to our community member, Mister Doctor Ned, yes. who is pledging us at a level where he gets a shout out every episode, and we're mighty appreciative of your support, Fantastic. Ned. Thank you. If you would like to become a member of the See You on the Other Side and Sunspot Patreon, I think you would. community. How, how can they do that, Mike? I heard it's really easy. It's super easy. The fastest way is just to head, like, type into your phone or wherever you are right now, othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Climb on board. Join the Patreons. Get into our next Hangout. Maybe get a special surprise video. Maybe get some interesting discussion that you don't just get to have if you like us on Facebook or whatever. The Patreons are where it's at, and you can join at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to I want to go back here real quick and just emphasize how gross this stuff is we're talking about.